Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, and this is Album Clash. I am Tim. And I'm Kev. And uh, yeah, this is part two of our second ever clash. Last week, I took us through the Stone Roses' uh, long-awaited second album, The Second Coming. And uh, this week, Kev, just tell everyone what you're going to be taking us through. So it is my, um, I'm not sure whether pleasure is the, is the correct term, it is my duty to uh, lead, lead the group through Be Here Now, Oasis's third album uh, largely anticipated to be the greatest thing that has ever happened to music when it was released and well you'll hear our thoughts about how we feel they uh, managed to to reach that standard yeah so the theme of this clash is very much well a few things that connect them firstly obviously the obvious one being manchester bands next one being drugs and in particular cocaine as we'll get into in this week's show uh, but mainly it is certainly albums that very much failed to meet, meet expectations <laughs> yes do i detect some apprehension in your voice kevin when you uh, talk about be here now it's it's not apprehension it's, as as i'm sure the listeners will hear there is um there, I have certain thoughts about about this album, which become very clear the further we get into it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, no spoilers, uh, but I suggest without further ado, we uh, we do just that. Let's get into it. Okay, so we move on to "Be Here Now," released on the twenty first of August, nineteen ninety seven. I will go into why that date is is of significance. Um, a hugely anticipated album. Prelude to it, obviously, the release of What's a Story, Morning Glory had had been it been a huge success. Um, particularly the uh, the famous Enemy uh, front page, the Battle of the Bands, the whole roll with it uh, country house thing that that went on. Which may I interrupt will surely be the subject of a future album clash. Yeah. So the. Oasis were then subsequently they they had Nebworth where there were two and a half million people who who applied for tickets. There were two hundred and fifty thousand people who attended. So essentially, they could have had twenty days solid of gigs. So I was one of those two and a half million who applied for tickets for Nebworth. I was unfortunately not one of the quarter million people who were successful in getting tickets to Nebworth. I, I also was uh, one of the one of the people who applied for it. My first my first ever gig uh, was Oasis of Main Road, which in itself is an iconic gig. It, it's not a it's not a bad first one. I, I'm not going to lie. The, this is this is a band at the presumably at the peak of its powers, the peak of its popularity. Then things start to happen. The internal dynamics within the band, which has have always caused issues. The I mean, one of the amazing things about Oasis's history was the wibbling rivalry, a recording of Noel and Liam having an argument in the studio, charted. Yes, indeed. Like, amazingly, people bought that. And 
what what happened in the run-up to not even the recording sessions for for be here now they were due to go to america they had a an mtv unplugged performance at the royal albert hall which liam uh refused to sing at because he said i think he said he had a sore throat he then he then um his, his sore throat clearly he'd taken some lockets or had some buttercup syrup because he proceeded to heckle from the balcony. <laughs> Other lozenges are available. So then they're due to go on the US tour. A lot of the songs off What's a Story had had done well in America. So this is this is the time. This is the time to grab to grab the nettle. And obviously you could you can break America at this point. Liam declined to go because he said that he had to buy a house for him and Patty Kensit. He then he then performed at the MTV VMAs, where he deliberately sang off key and spat beer and just gobbed on the crowd. I remember that. So I watched those VMAs and and they they played Champagne Supernova and, and yeah he was he was just a dick. The the tour limped on. They got to Charlotte, North Carolina. Noel has enough um, and leaves the band. He then re- rejoins a few weeks later and the sessions for Be Here Now commence. So as I'm sure uh, Tim will will go into, many of the songs on Be Here Now were initially demoed whilst Noel was holidaying in Mustique with Johnny Depp and Kate Moss in Mick Jagger's private villa. I mean, I mean if, there's, if there's ever an indication of how far a band, uh, an individual has come from their roots, it's the sentence you just spoke. Yeah, in terms in terms of the release day, um, so obviously we've talked about before that twenty first of August ninety seven for us was a a very important day. It was the release of Be Here Now, and it was it was the day that our year got our GCSE results. And I will hold my hand up that I was more asked about the re- the release of Be Here Now than I was. I, I was on holiday and flew back the day the day the the album got released. I went to the record shop to go buy my album before I picked before I picked up my GCSE results. <laughs> I was more asked about the release of this album, which in the weeks beforehand, like Noel hadn't really helped the hyperbole around it. He had made out that this was that this album was going to be the album to end all albums. They did not dampen down the expectation, which was already a heightened expectation for this album. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we usually talk about uh, our introduction to the album, and if we did that now, we'd be telling the same story because, as Kev said, we're both from the same school year. We both got our GCSE results on twenty first of August, nineteen ninety seven, and for both of us, that wasn't the most important thing that happened that day. We were more bothered, and we didn't know each other at the time, but we both told each other this story. We both. So I went to Virgin Megastore uh, at the uh, Telford Shopping Centre. I was there for nine o'clock in the morning. I had to join a small queue, to be fair. It wasn't a massive queue. Uh, But yeah, that was the thing for the day. I wanted to buy the new Oasis album. And the day after was the first time I went to see U2 as well. So actually the GCSE results was third on my priority list for that (laughs) week, to be honest with you. So what, I mean, one one of the things that... I, I do remember from from the time, but in until doing the research for this, I'd completely forgotten. People who bought the album from HMV received a special certificate. So the people who bought it at midnight um, when it'd been released received a special c- certificate to say they bought it that day. Yeah, it said was there then, and how pissed off was I that I went to the fucking Virgin Megastore and not HMV. I never got that certificate. 
which again, like you are not damping down expectation on on this. The, you're giving out certificates. The the way that they'd released the album to the media in the weeks before had been really weird because they were so paranoid about it leaking out to to the tabloid press and everything that people's people's mobiles were being checked. All the all these kind of weird things. And Steve Lamack was given a copy to play on the on the evening session. He he then played too much of it and or didn't didn't talk over it enough because they were scared of bootlegging that they then said that he couldn't play anymore. I mean, Jesus, like you was like you you were setting yourself up to fail. So cocaine use permeated the sessions. Oh, Owen Morris, the producer, um, said was quoted as saying, "Someone tried to score an ounce of weed, but instead came back with an ounce of cocaine." Morris himself thought that the new material that had been produced was weak, but when Noel dismissed it, he, he, he admits himself he carried on shoveling drugs up his nose. Alan McGee, for those who, who aren't aware, Alan McGee was the, um, the co-owner of uh, Creation Records, um, which this album was released on, said, I used to go down to the studio and there was so much cocaine um, getting done at that moment. Owen was out of control, and he was the one in charge of it. Yeah, uh, uh, there's so there's more, and and this may sound like we're competing as quotes, but th- there's so much to say. There are so many people that have been quoted so many times around this album. So Owen Morris, uh, in an interview with Q in 2017, which is the same interview that that quote Kevin said earlier was taken from, he said the only reason anyone was there was the money. Noel had decided Liam was a shit singer. Liam had decided he hated Noel's songs. So on we went. Massive amounts of drugs, big fights, bad vibes, shit recordings. The band's manager, Marcus Russell, said, in retrospect, we went into the studio too quickly. The smart move would have been to take the rest of the year off. Noel agreed exactly with that sentiment. So in an interview with Vivo in 2016, he said, uh, we should never have made that record then. Instead of saying we should just go our separate ways for a year or two, we decided like idiots to go straight into the studio. If I had my time, I would definitely walk away from the sessions. Noel Gallagher, um, in typical Noel Gallagher style, around the drugs, this is, you know, prophetic or bollocks. History was balanced on a little portable mirror with the razor blade. And we snorted it. <laughs> and you can tell. <laughs> so not, not to, to go too far behind the curtain, the production curtain, but we did have a chat, a, a brief chat about, about this. And I did tell Tim that my notes are permeated with the word bloated. Because this is a <laughs> this this is an album that needed a producer who wasn't off his tits on Coke. Well, we're we're we're, go, we're gonna get we're gonna get into it. So, so you mentioned, sorry, just before we do, you mentioned the Mystique sessions. So that is something that, as you said, I, I, I want to come back to and want to talk about. But I think we should go through the album first. And then there's, there's, there's a few things I want to say about that. So, so the, art, the artwork on, on the, the, the front of the album. So there's a reference. So the reason that I, that I wrote down the date, 21st of August, 97, the release date, is that it is on the front of the album. It's on the back of the the, the booklet or the um, within the CD as as I had, or I presume it's on the back of the on the back of the inlay uh, for the vinyl version because I, I know Tim it has it. There is a 
a an actual Rolls Royce that is 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 in a swimming pool. It's it's essentially a photo collage that's been done for real. And the the cost the cost of that it must have been astronomical because sticking a sticking a Rolls Royce in a swimming pool isn't a it's not an easy thing to do. So the the cover itself was shot at Stocks House in Hertfordshire in April 1997. It was shot by Michael Spencer. A lot of people have tried to read a lot of significance into the the various props that were used in the shoot in reality most of them were just chosen at random from things that were in the the bbc props department the only two things that were chosen deliberately uh, apart from the calendar as kevin said were there's a inflatable globe that's a just a reference to the cover of definitely maybe and the other one was the rolls royce in the swimming pool which bonehead thought would be cool which is fair enough. Now, clearly they didn't want to destroy a Rolls-Royce. So the swimming pool was emptied. They then built a scaffolding uh, structure on which they mounted the Rolls-Royce so it would be on an angle. Then they took the photograph and the water that appears in the swimming pool was photoshopped in afterwards. But even just the, the work involved in that is not an insignificant undertaking. So, yeah, it was... In itself, the the shooting of an album cover was very ambitious. Well, it was atypical of the of the album, really. One of the one of the ideas that they had that was rejected due to cost was they were gonna they were gonna take a photo of each band member in different places around the world. That was that was the initial <laughs> idea that they had. Again, the influence of cocaine seems very strong here. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. The last thing I'll say before we start going through the album is that a lot of the props that were used uh, on the album cover were then integrated into the set design, the stage design for the subsequent tour. The clock uh, was on the stage itself. The Rolls Royce was what Alan White's drum kit was built around. And the most prominently the phone box uh, the band took to the stage from the phone box at the beginning of the concert. It's the one time where Oasis have done a tour where there's been a show in that regard. Uh, always been a great live band, but it's the one time there's been a set design and anything. Now, this came off the back of them touring. Well, not touring. They did a couple of shows with, I think, in California earlier that year, supporting U2 on the first leg of the Pop Mart tour, which... Anyone who follows you two might remember is the tour on which they had the world's largest ever video screen and a huge golden arch and a giant glitter ball lemon. And if you see the set design for the Be Here Now tour, you can see that they've had a couple of shows of you two and they've thought, we need to do something like that. And well, well certainly it's it, it's interesting that you you obviously refer to refer to you two. Because we we both have a theory that no band ever should go on tour and support U2 because it ruins them. Oasis, obviously, we we can talk about what what happened subsequently after obviously in this album. Um, Kings of Leon, their sound became very very different when they after they toured with U2. Primal Scream, the the Killers, there are a ton of ton of bands who U who U2 have ruined. Yeah. Now, I love U2, and I'm sure at some point on this show, we'll do some U2 albums. I love U2, but yeah, tour with U2 and 
the end is nigh. Bono breaks your band. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, so shall we start? Yes. Do you want to start taking us through be here now? So the one of the things that I I have I have done what is I've noted down the length of the songs <laughs> for everyone because it is very relevant. So the lead single and the first song on the album, Do You Know What I Mean? Seven minutes 40. It takes a whole minute for the song to start. It's two and a half minutes until the first chorus. I mean, what I can what I can remember when it initially first came out, the, the excitement for it, the, the helicopters, Liam and his Parker. Like at the time when it first came out, everyone went, wow, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, the the video for this, as you said, military helicopters, smoke flares going off everywhere, Liam and a massive Parker jacket. It was here we are. It was it was huge. It was big. It was come on. However, listening listening to it back now and with the with the goggles of fandom removed, it's it's not it's not a bad song. It goes on far too long and it's a bit plodding. Yep. Apparently, and I was fucking amazed about this. Um, it can it contains a slow drum loop from Straight Out of Compton. Two songs which are very, very different. Yeah, exactly. And I've listened to this track so many times back in the day. I've listened to it researching this this show. I can't hear anything that sounds remotely like Straight Out of Compton. Sorry, Abs- absolutely not. So the also the Morse code the Morse code in it is apparently a direct reference to Strawberry Fields. Now I have a I was gonna I was gonna bring this question up when we got to all around the world, which is later on in the album. But I'm gonna ask this question now. Oasis have always been compared with the Beatles, but I don't actually understand why. I do not think they sound anything like the Beatles. I don't understand where this lazy comparison, apart from their two northern bands. Obviously, Oasis referred back to to the 60s and everything like that and would make deliberate references in their stuff to, so obviously Wonderwall and and things like that, to to stuff related to the the Beatles. So Be Here Now is a song off Living in the Material World, a George Harrison album. But I don't actually understand where it comes from because they don't sound anything alike. I mean, what, what do you think? I agree. They don't sound anything alike. Uh, I think over time, not at this stage, but uh, as Oasis progressed in their careers, I think Liam certainly tried to make himself sound more like John Lennon, including the way John Lennon used to double track his vocals with a slight delay, so it sounded like an echo. I think Oasis themselves have always fueled that, even in this song. Lyrics in this song, you know, fool on the hill and I feel fine. Yeah. Two Beatles song titles within the song itself. It it may stem from the fact that uh, for a, a good couple of years, including at Nebworth, where they did the song with the bootleg Beatles, Oasis finished all their shows with Iron the Walrus. They didn't do anything to turn people off those comparisons is all I'd say. Yeah, it's it's just, it's a very weird thing that they are always synonymous, but to, to me, they don't, they do not sound anything alike. And obviously in musically as well, is that Oasis are nowhere near as expansive or 
or interesting to be honest like don't get me wrong i do i do like their i do like their music the fir- the first two albums and the elements of, elements of this so don't get me wrong i don't dislike him but i do not understand this symbiotic link that w- that's been created in the in the music press i agree yeah so in in terms of so going back to do you know what i mean by about four minutes thirty, the song can end. Certainly by five minutes, Noel Noel himself has said he expected to be to be asked to reduce the length of the song by two minutes, but no one had the co- the courage to ask him. the The song is massively overproduced, and it I mean even it finishes at around six forty, and you've got a minute of reverb to plow through. Not just reverb, but backwards backwards guitars. So. You said overproduced. There are apparently over 30 guitar tracks on this and not even different guitar tracks. Apparently what Noel Gallagher and Owen Morris were doing was was overdubbing the same guitar track up to 10 times on this. So they had to get two tape decks in to do the masters because they they had that that many tracks that they were overdubbing. It's it's too much. It's so I I'm not sure if listeners will be familiar with, but in in 2016, Noel Gallagher actually uh, produced a, a remastered version of Do You Know What I Mean, which was called um, is a rethink, and it stripped out so much of the flab as as you said earlier, the bloated mess, and they didn't edit out anything out time wise, which I agree could certainly be be revisited, but it just edited out so much of the noise. And it is a vastly superior version of the song because it is so much less excessive. Yeah, I mean, Alan McGee, um, again, when when talking about the album, he describes it as it's just so fucking loud. I mean, one of the one of my first re-listens to it, I made, I made the mistake of listening to it through headphones because I wanted to pick up, because I did it with both albums, and that's why I picked up the bass and the, the drums really well on uh, Second Coming. This, like, it, it hurt it hurt me ears. Like, it's just, it's, yeah. there's too much going on. Okay, I think there's a, there's a lot to get through, and there's, there's some lengthy old songs. Yes. Okay, so My Big Mouth, coming in at around five minutes, it does sound more oasisy than the previous song, and this is going to be a consistent theme throughout. The note note I made again could do with at least two minutes cutting from it. So yeah, I I've said this to you in the past, and I'm going to say it now. Otherwise, I'm going to be saying it another ten times after we say this. Every single track on this album has too many guitar tracks and is two minutes too long. So I've said it now. I'm not going to say it again. That's just take it as read for everything. My Big Mouth. So it was debuted to the public at, at Nebworth, actually. At the time of recording, the, the version that was played at Nebworth is available on YouTube. Whether or not that gets taken down for copyright reasons, obviously, I, I don't know. But you can hear the version they played at Nebworth. And when you hear the version they play there, it's a perfectly enjoyable Oasis rock track. It reminds me of Morning Glory. Mm-hmm. It's nice and up tempo. The lyrics aren't much to shout home about, but it's got a good rhythm to it. It's it sounds raw. It sounds enjoyable. It sounds oh, I'm looking forward to this album already. And then you hear this, and again, there's apparently 26 guitar tracks. It's a cacophony of noise. It's it, like and 
it's such a flabby album. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so I, as you said, I, I've got this on vinyl. I actually, so I've not listened to this album for years, 15 years at least, last time I listened to this album before this show. And I wanted to give it every chance. Now, I, I don't have the greatest audio equipment in the world, but I've got, you know, a decent set of headphones and I've got a decent turntable. So I bought a vinyl copy, you know, the remaster 2016. I said, well, I want to listen to this album properly. And this song in particular, Christ, it's just a dirge. It's, it's just noise. And ironically, one of the lyrics for this song is, it was a sound so very loud, no one can hear. I'm like, yeah, he's right. No, I can't hear a thing. It's the, the, I mean, that sums up most of this album. It does indeed. So I've got nothing else to say about My Big Mouth. It could have been a really good song. This version isn't. Okay, so then we go into Magic Pie. Is not about a magic pie, disappointingly. It's seven minutes long, and it seems a weird position in the album to have a slower, null-led song. It takes two minutes to get to the chorus. It's plodding. It ends with 45 seconds of shite at the end. It, oh God. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, well, it's actually 53 seconds of pointless noise is what I've said at the end. There's a Mellotron. No, oh, someone is playing a Mellotron with different tracks. Why? 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 I'm, so, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm getting a bit angry here re- reading you my notes. I, I, I disagree slightly with what you said. So if you take it back to Morning Glory, track three on that after Hello Wonder... Um, Sorry, after Hello and uh, Roll With It was Wonderwall, which was a slowed down acoustic number. And the start of this song sounds similar. The first 60 seconds or so of this song. He sounds, okay, I like the little organ part. I like there's some percussion in there, nice acoustic guitar, little guitar licks over the top. All right, this is, this is good. Then you get to the end of that first verse and all of a sudden, Bang! Fucking there's all the guitars coming and the drums and the strings and it's like, Jesus Christ, what has just happened to my ears? Sorry, I'm shouting. I'm going <laughs> to, I'll turn down my levels a bit. I'm sorry. That's the point at which this song loses me. It's not the acoustic beginning. It's the, let's bring everything in now and burst everyone's eardrums for what is a, a, a nothing song. It's not about, I, got, I don't, I've no idea what it's about. Sorry. I mean, essentially for me, the reason that, I mean, Wonderwall's a great song, but part of the reason that you can get away with a with a null-led a null third track is because you've come in with two really high, up-tempo, sharp, sharp songs. We've started with a bloated seven minutes 40. We've then got a five-minute song that could do with... So by this point, I'm not wanting seven minutes of null... No. I just want something a little sharp, sharp, sharper, <laughs> a little sharper and a little I mean, more punchy. There's a, there's a, there's lot, a of whole lot of sharts on this album. <laughs> okay. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So um, there's one thing I like about this song. In the chorus, there are some sort of psychedelic harmonies singing behind the lyrics, and I quite like that. And there's one... Uh, before the final chorus where it's just the harmonies and not the, the lyrics themselves. And I quite like that. 
But if that's the thing I like about this seven minute song, then it's telling you something, isn't it really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so then we move on to Stand By Me, five minutes, 56. <laughs> and I am going to do it on every song because it's important. It is. I agree. It it's is. great. So it is It is very Oasis sounding with the orchestra and everything like that. Obviously, in in our last last album, we, we talked about the fact that they basically plagiarized uh, Stairway to Heaven. Noel himself admits that the song is incredibly influenced by all the young dudes on the chorus. He basically just changed the chord structure. Like, he has stolen all the young dudes of the chorus. It's like incredibly influenced by all the young dudes. He he didn't change anything about the chord structure. He just took it and put it in the middle of his own song. I mean, he he says himself that he was smart enough to change the chords. Yeah, okay. Not a huge amount. Like, clearly Bowie just couldn't be arsed or mob the hoople with, do you know what? We can't be arsed getting royalties from this because, you know, what's the point? The thing I've, the first thing I've written in my notes on this song is that this is the most pared down song so far on the album. So if this is a palate cleanser, we are in big trouble. And we are. (laughs) Uh, I've just a couple of things to say. Apparently the song wasn't, was written uh, not long after Noel had first moved to London. Uh, the first lyric in particular, made a meal and threw it up on Sunday. I've got a lot of things to learn is a reference to he'd phoned his mum to ask how he cooks a Sunday roast. She told him he tried to cook a Sunday roast and he'd give himself food poisoning. Uh, fine. Okay. I'm not sure how the rest of the song relates to anything like that, but it, it's a nice little lyric, I suppose. So people of our generation may recall that the night before the album was released, BBC One aired a documentary to promote the album. And in that, there was an acoustic version of this song played where Noel, Liam and Alan White with a tambourine were sat around a swimming pool. And it's a far better version than is on the album. I have to say, despite all the criticism we've just levelled at this song, despite myself, I like it. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't mind it, and I know it's 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 quite a hackneyed, quite a hackneyed song. It, it, it plays to certain tropes, but I do, I do, I do quite like it. I have a soft spot for it. Maybe that's nostalgia. Maybe that's um, I don't know something else rather than the musical or lyrical content. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that song. Part of the reason I like this song is because it got me. Uh, not my first kiss, but one of my first kisses. <laughs> um, <laughs> back, well, obviously 1997, because that's when this album was released. I, if you'd follow the timeline after GCSE results, I was in I was in college and I went on a um, a trip to France. Uh, well, the school I went to has a connection with the Olympic Games. I referred to it last week. Do your research. Much Wenlock, Olympic Games. It's absolutely true. So we were at a week-long camp, whatever you want to call it, where schools from around Europe with connections to the Olympics came together. And I took my guitar, as you do. You know, you're 16. Why not? Take my guitar, play. <laughs> Did you play Wonderwall? Uh, I didn't need to play Wonderwall. All I, all I needed to do was play Stand By Me. Literally, 
sat ah. around a campfire one night playing Stand By Me. A uh, quite attractive young German lady was quite taken by my guitar playing and uh, one thing led to another. And yeah, there we go. So uh, good memories. You are the worst human being that has ever, <laughs> ever walked the earth. Fucking, acu- fucking acoustic guitar. Like, that's why I said about Wonderwall. Like, you're the knobhead who brought an acoustic guitar to a party to play Wonderwall. Worst human ever. <laughs> yep. All right. I'm guilty. Fine. So, uh, as we move on from Tim's horrific um, confession, we move on to one of the shortest songs on the album, thankfully. I hope I think I know. So what I, what I did note about this, Liam's voice very prominent in the in the song, and I do I do want to talk about Liam Liam's voice. That in subsequent releases, I found his voice to be much more nasally. May have something to do with the production of the of this album and what people were consuming, but I found his his voice to be quite grating um, on later releases. Here, here, it, it, it does, he, he does sound good. The song itself, it's a bit of an album filler. It's, it's not bad. It's not great. It's, it's just not particularly memorable. It's fine, and I think that's the most damning praise I can give give to it. So I, I don't agree that it's fine. I, I didn't like this song in 1997, and I don't like it now. It's so poppy and throwaway to listen to, but again, it's ludicrously overproduced and too loud. If you listen to the lyrics, it it appears to be about media intrusion into, I guess, normal because he was the songwriter, into their lives, which you think should be quite a biting, furious song in a similar way to Bring It On Down from the first album, but it's not. It's, as you said, it's bloated, it's flabby, it's noisy. Even this song can't get under four minutes, and it's the shortest song on the album. No, as I said, I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. Um, Certainly on some, on a a later song, my opinion from the time has not changed, but we we will get to that. So we move on to the five minutes and 49, Girl in the Dirty Shirt. So Meg Matthews, uh, Noel's wife, well, future wife, I think she may have been his wife at this time. She was at this time, but not at the time this song was written. So she is the girl in the dirty shirt. So Noel said at the time we were doing a gig in Brighton just before and um, him and Meg were going out. She was at the hotel ironing a dirty shirt because she hadn't brought enough clean clothes with her. That is the most exciting thing I can say about this song it is plodding. It's it's everything that we've criticised this album for. <sighs> I have written in block capitals. Why is this song nearly six minutes long? <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I I like the organ part at the end. It's different for Oasis. I can't, it's nice the little keyboard organ. It's nice. I like it. But does it need to take five minutes to get there? No. Uh, so we're we're halfway through the album, and I'm I'm bored now. I'm exhausted. I have to say, uh, I should have said at the start, one side of this album I like a lot more than the other, and I am half an hour plus through this album. 
And at this point, I'm I'm at a low. Okay, so at your low point, a allegedly horrific human being plays on the next song, the six minutes and 52 fading out. So the allegedly horrific human being is uh, Johnny Depp. I'm not going to go into that because there was a court case. I'm not really going to discuss any anything on that. There was, there was a court case in 2020 in which neither the plaintiff nor the defendant came across very well. Let's leave it there. Okay, yeah, thank thank you uh, for um, extricating me from a potential legal minefield. Um, So Johnny Tepp plays the slide guitar on this. Noel was reportedly too drunk to play. So this is is one point where I'd like to bring in the Mustique sessions, the demos. So I'd heard the same thing about Noel being reportedly too drunk to play. I'd read the same quote. The... Uh, the slide guitar that Johnny play, Johnny Depp plays on the track that makes its way onto the album is taken from the Mystique demos. Uh, so I would question the veracity of that claim because if it was during demos, surely they would just have demoed the song on another day. Since as you as you said earlier, they were holidaying in the same place at the same time. But it's it is it's not even let's re-record that guitar part, Donny. It is they recorded that guitar part during the Mesquite demos, and that is the one that makes its way onto the album. So I don't know, but I am casting doubt on the truth of the suggestion that Noel was too drunk. I mean, my my suspicion is that they they sim like because obviously the a lot of the songs were written whilst holidaying with Johnny Depp. Kate Moss on Mick, Mick Jagger's villa on a private island. Liam is with um, Patty Kensett. I think they just wanted to have like some kind of they could show their celebrity cachet by oh well Johnny Depp's played on this song because we're so cool and like and that's genuinely what I think about it. Yeah, I think you're right. So by this time Johnny Depp uh, had already had a song recorded with Oasis. So when we were going through Second Coming, I talked about the War Child album in 95. And on that, uh, there's a version of Fade Away, which is a B-side uh, from Oasis, which was re-recorded, uh, was called, titled From Oasis and Friends, those friends being Johnny Depp and, and Kate Moss. Johnny Depp plays guitar on that. So, yeah, absolutely. It's like, look at all our celebrity mates. <sighs> what I'd say is you've never heard... Noel Gallagher play slide guitar before this point, and I don't recall him ever playing slide guitar since this point. So perhaps it's just the fact that Johnny, I think a slide guitar part would go really well with this song, but I've never played it before. Would you like doing it? Yeah, sound that sounds good. I don't know. I'm speculating, but it sounds plausible to me. Um, so when when discussing the song, Noel has been very critical of the scream within within the song and it is a bit shite as a as a rock scream he is no dave Grohl. i i can i disagree with you there i don't think it's a bit shite i think it's a lot shite (laughs) 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 i mean it yeah fuck it off I mean, that that must have been lovely for our for our listeners to hear that noise from you. Not editing that out. In fact, I'm going to put an effect on that. I'm going to put some, 
yeah, that's that's staying in. <laughs> um, I, I do like this song, but as with so many other things with this with this album, could do with losing two minutes, particularly the last. There's a whole outro going for the last minute, and it's, it's pointless. Uh, yes, I think you're right about the outro. Um, I really like this song. I have to say, it sounds completely different to anything else Oasis had recorded before, and arguably recorded past this point. It's got a very country blues uh, driving through the desert sound to it, which is obviously exemplified by by Johnny Depp's slide guitar. I really like it. I really, really like this song. Always have. There's a version. And again, it's available of the whole concert's available on YouTube. So the the Be Here Now tour, the concert at the Manchester GMEX, I think it was, I think it was December of 97 that was televised on MTV. That concert is available on YouTube. The video is in two parts. They play this towards the end of the gig and it sounds completely different, but it still sounds really, really good. I, I've always liked Fading Out. It's a good song. Yeah, it, it is. So next song, Don't Go Away, 4 minutes 48. Again, one of the shorter ones on the album. It was written about losing someone close. So Peggy Gallagher, Nolan Liam's mum, was in hospital at the time and it was feared she had cancer. Whilst this wasn't the case, it inspired uh, Noel to write a sad song about losing someone. Um, it was released as a single, um, but only in Japan. Um, and on the front cover, again, another pointless Beatles reference. It has the old a picture of the old Liverpool airport, which obviously the Beatles came back from America and the whole Beatlemania thing <sighs> could lose another minute, minute and a half, to be honest. So in the last clash, we talked about how bold it was for George Harrison to put two versions of the same song on one album. There's an argument to say it's equally, if not more bold for Oasis to put two versions of the same song on two different albums. And I've got to say, I preferred the original version of Slide Away. (laughs) I've got nothing else to say about this song from what you just, yeah, it could lose a minute or two. Again, there's a pointless acoustic guitar and strings outro at the end. Come on. It's it's fine. It's too long. Yeah. Okay, so we limp (laughs) into the the next song, Be Here Now, 5 minutes 13. I will hold my hands up and say I have always despised this song. I hated it the first first time I heard it. I hate it now. I will never stop hating it. It it makes my skin crawl. I sing a song for me, one from Let It Be, the obligatory Beatles reference. Got to, I got to two minutes, so I did try and come into it and not hate it. I got to two minutes 30, and I was like, I was checking, Christ, how long's left of it? Oh, Jesus, there's half the song left. By the time of the first commands, I was desperate, desperate for it to finish. I, I despise this song, and I can't tell you why, but I hate it so much. I'm quite pleased, because I even... Two clashes in, I'm starting to get the the fear that the listeners might think, you two just agree with each other about everything. I really like this song, and I always have. I like it a lot. And I like the throwaway bollocks lyrics about nothing, because it's, it, it's what got me into Oasis. 
the nonsense, not this song, obviously, but the nonsense, <laughs> the lyrics that don't mean anything, they're throwaway. This is a nice, simple rock song. You don't read too much into the lyrics. It's got a nice beat to it all the way through. It's got clear references to their previous material. So there's your shit jokes remind me of Diggsies is a, is a throwback to, to, to Diggsies dinner from definitely maybe. Now, a little side story there. Uh, so Diggsy, uh, subject of Diggsy's dinner and the reference here, uh, lead singer of a band called Smaller uh, from Liverpool. I have uh, not only met Diggsy, but he has borrowed my guitar to play music, to play uh, Lars covers, in fact. So uh, this is a long time ago now. I used to play an open mic night uh, on a Anyone that knows Liverpool might remember the Exchange Bar on Tideburn Street. This is a, a long while ago now. And it, they did an open mic night on a Thursday. I used to go down to that. And uh, Diggsy was in there one night. He didn't have a guitar with him. I played a couple of songs at the open mic night. He said, can I borrow your guitar, lad? Off you go. He started playing loads of Lars songs. It was great, to be honest with you. I mean, I didn't know that we were going to start um, name dropping and uh, making our making our celebrity well known to the, <laughs> to the listeners in in, ter- in terms of this we we clearly we clearly disagree i like it, it irritates me so much it makes my skin crawl like that's how much i like the opening the opening start of it even before the music like i'm not even going to give it the dignity of calling it wall of sound the musical assault the comes at you after the first couple of seconds. Oh, I hate it. Hate it. Well, that's it. I, I, I think this is one track that, that isn't a musical assault. I think this is one where it's a little bit more restrained. I, I, I stand by what I said earlier. You take two minutes off it and, and two guitar tracks off its sound. It's a much better track, but I, I like it. it. It doesn't have to be about anything. It's just, it's a nice, upbeat rock song. Uh, and so perhaps... Part of the reason I like it. So you said you went to Main Road. The first time I saw Oasis was on this tour. I saw them at the uh, National Indoor Arena in Birmingham. Uh, and again, if you watch that, the NTV show from YouTube, this this opened the shows and it was a great show open. It was like, come on. It was, I love it. I really like this song. Sorry, I do. Okay, well, fair, fair enough. That that this is why it's album clash. So finally, we have some we have some debate. We have some yeah, we have some disagreements. I respect your right to hold the wrong opinion. That's fine. <laughs> Look, if if you like shite music, then that's up to you. <laughs> okay. So we then go into all around the world. Nine minutes twenty. Backing vote vocals reportedly by Richard Ashcroft. Meg Matthews, uh, Noel's then wife, and she of the hilarious bad South African accent in Lethal Weapon 2, Liam's <laughs> then uh, wife, Patsy Kenseth. So Noel described the song to Q magazine shortly before the re- release of the album thusly, and I, w- I will read the whole quote. I-, I wrote this one ages ago before whatever. It was 12 minutes long at 12 minutes long then. It was a matter of being able to afford to record it, but now we can get away with the 36-piece orchestra, and the longer the better as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that goes for the whole album. I can see what people are going to say, but fuck them, basically. The lyrics are teeny poppy, but there are three key changes towards the end. And this is this is where he... I mean, Noel has never suffered for confidence, but 
Imagine how much better Hey Jude would have been with three key changes towards the end. I mean, so the video references Yellow Submarine. References? References? Come on! Yeah, basically Nick's uh, whole tropes from uh, the Yellow Submarine cartoon, which is brilliant. Um, If if you've not seen it, go and watch that because it's really good. I could probably get behind this song because I don't dislike the song. But if it faded out around 6.37 minutes-ish, for the first pigs don't fly uh, refrain, that'd be fine. I think I think you would probably go, all right. But it just keeps going, and it keeps like, and this is cut down from what he want, wanted. Like he wanted another three minutes of this, and uh, again, it it is the the overriding theme of this album is it's just so much. Like just cut the fucking song down. So I kind of agree with everything you've said apart from all the things you said (laughs) and this is entirely subjective and this is entirely my recollections of time at which I bought this album and was listening to this album and that time in my life you're right you're absolutely right but I fucking love this song I wouldn't cut a second out of it. I'd love to hear a 12-minute version. I love the orchestra. This is one where I love the noise. I love ev- I love this song. Sorry, I do. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you in terms of the uh, the depth of the song, the how, how how large it is. I think it it is one of the few ones on the album where the fact that they threw everything at it. Like I can understand that. It it just for me coming coming at it from a later point and trying to be objective and put aside my rem- remembrances of things past it's it's too long uh, this whole album needs a non coked up producer to just discipline it i yes you're right and as i said it's it, this is in this is my this is my emotional nostalgic part of my brain taking over um you you're absolutely right i can't disagree with anything you've said but I love it and I wouldn't change it. It's um it's brilliant. It's not, but it is. So the, the <laughs> only the only other thing, so you said it was written one of the it was one of the first songs Noel wrote. And uh, if you watch the documentary film Supersonic, which was released in 2016, there is and that charts the history of the band from their formation up until Nebworth. Uh, and again, it's really, really good. So once you finish this podcast, go and watch Supersonic. It's 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 done by this, the same production company that made the Amy Winehouse film, Amy, and it's well worth a watch. It's a, it's a, it is a really good watch. Yeah, uh, but there's 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 footage of Oasis playing this during their rehearsal sessions at the Boardwalk in Manchester back in sort of '92, and uh, yeah. I like this song. Sorry, I'm not going to change my mind. Fair enough. So we we are coming towards the end of the album. Um, we then come to the seven minutes long. It's getting better, man. Noel said that this is this is a very different film because this is more of a Stone style song. So he says you can almost see Keith and and Ronnie with uh, fags in their mouth giving it some to this. Really, I did not get that from. From from this song at all? No. 
it, it was written during the disastrous American tour preceding the album record. <sighs> Just... You're not a fan of this song. Make it shorter. Make it shorter. <laughs> make it shorter. Make it fewer guitar tracks. But I like it. Yeah, I don't, I don't dislike the song. Lose two or three minutes. Yep. So the what I've written is that the the closing lyric, it's getting better, man, is repeated 32 times over 64 bars at the end of the song. That tells you everything you need to know about the production of this album. Noel, just do it four times and set the song off. It's a really good song at four minutes. So we then um, end with the All Around the World reprise. Um, nothing really to say about it. Um, so there's, there's a piccolo on it because... Why not? Well, a musician... like So it's, there is a quote saying a musician said, oh, yeah, you should have a piccolo on this. So they, they just went out and recorded it. <laughs> and that, seemed, that seems so redolent of this album. So the only thing I'd say is, is the, the, the trumpet or cornet, the, the horn part that sort of comes in about halfway through uh, after the strings have kicked in. It reminds me of the 1812 overture. That's one for fans of some Pat Peanut Butter adverts from the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, like to me, that again, the obligatory Beatles uh, reference of the piccolo is a bit Strawberry Fields. The the cornets are a bit Sergeant Peppers. So the the last word on the album, I will leave to the always opening his mouth and never knowingly not speaking Noel Gallagher. So his uh, his quote on Be Here Now, it's the sound of a, of a bunch of guys on coke, not giving a fuck. There's no bass to it at all. I don't know what happened to that. And all the songs are really long. Yep. And all the lyrics are shit. And for every millisecond, Liam is not saying a word. There's a fucking guitar riff in there in a Wayne's World style. I cannot disagree with any sentiment that he's put there. I, I disagree with one thing he said there. He said Wayne's World style clearly means Bill and Ted style. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's be here now. So will you permit me to talk a little bit through the, uh, the legacy of the album and... Uh, all that stuff. Sure. Um, just before just before you start that, what I can what I can say about it is that in terms of the actual album itself, it sold six hundred ninety six thousand copies in the first week. However, there was a some kind of study done in the early two thousands, and it was the most gifted album to charity shops in the early two thousands. It did not stand the test of of its initial early solid sales. That study was by Melody Maker magazine. You're absolutely right. So on the first day, it sold 424,000 copies. As you said, it sold 696 in the first week of sales. Uh, That makes it the fastest selling album in the history of uh, the UK charts, a record that the album still retains today, nearly 24 years after its initial release. By the end of 1997, it had sold 8 million copies worldwide. And in terms of its certifications, so it's been certified as platinum in the United States, Sweden, Spain, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and Australia two times platinum in Japan and Canada. And in the UK, it was certified seven times platinum. So 
commercially, this album was a huge success. As you said, right at the start of going through this album, this was a band at the peak of their popularity. And the the initial reviews, like because I because obviously we, we we talked about it, the initial reviews were glowing. Like I can remember it was because as I as I mentioned earlier, like I was on holiday just preceding its release, and I remember reading in the I think it was the Mirror, like gave it a absolutely glowing review. Like everyone was very positive about it. It's just after the initial <laughs> the initial listen, it became much harder to listen to. Uh, so, so just to exemplify what you've just said, Q Magazine gave this album five stars, although they did say it is clearly cocaine set to music, a, st- a sentiment with which I think we would both agree. <laughs> Rolling Stone said that Be Here Now is 60s and 70s rock classicism, writ large and loud, all broad strokes and bullish enthusiasm. So the, as you said, the, the reviews at the time were really positive. Now, there are some uh, theories nowadays that, that suggest a reason for the positive reviews. And because the reviews, the initial reviews of What's the Story Morning Glory had been quite negative, uh, yet that had become to, that had moved, come on to be a colossus in terms of the, the, the public reception of the album and a you know, zeitgeist-defining album, if you want to use such wanky terms, that the musical press effectively kowtowed to public opinion of Oasis and didn't want to be seen to miss that uh, zeitgeist again. So when it came to review and be here now, they're like, oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And the, I mean, if you, if you, if you go online and look at a certain elements of the internet, there are people who genuinely, genuinely really, really like this album still and cannot understand why it is so negatively viewed. I mean, it, its legacy essentially is that it's considered the, the the bloated corpse of Britpop, of the Britpop era, that this is the end of it. And I suppose immediately after this, you see the rise of the rise of the Spice Girls. Robbie Williams suddenly become becoming very popular the as um I think Liam refer, was it Liam or Noel referred to him as the uh, fat backup dancer from Stoke. And then ultimately reaching the nadir of uh, Travis having a um, what was thought at the time at a seminal set at Glastonbury. So, uh, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You know, as you said, it's been held at, Be Here Now has been held as the, as the beginning of the end of Britpop. So in a 2003 documentary called uh, Live Forever, The Rise and Fall of Britpop, critic John Savage said that Be Here Now isn't the great disaster everyone says, but it was supposed to be the big triumphal record, and it absolutely wasn't. And and you have to blame the record company, the band's publicist, and the band themselves, not least Noel Gallagher, as you said right at the start of this, for creating that hype when they needn't have done so. Guitar music in as a, as a genre... In, the, in this country, didn't really recover from Be Here Now until the release of, um, and definitely an album that we will we will review, um, was The Strokes' uh, first album, which heralded a new a new wave essentially of of guitar bands that that sort of moved out of the shadow of the landfill indie that had had overwhelmed the scene by by this point. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And, and as you said, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about The Strokes and a lot of the other bands that came after on, on future episodes of this show. Now, um, it's that time again. We need to talk about Noel. So, Kevin, would you please enlighten the audience? So, Noel Gallagher has certainly over the past five, ten years become increasingly more reactionary in his viewpoint. So, during the COVID times, he has um, railed against the wearing of masks in supermarkets. I mean, one of the points he was making is that he couldn't understand that he has to wear a, a mask in a supermarket when he doesn't necessarily have to wear one in a pub, which wasn't necessarily true. But I understand the point that he's making. But then everything else he said was just ridiculous around that, which was about, well, you know, if I get if I get it, then I don't like it's not a problem. Well, um, yeah. Uh, so can I? Can I? I'd like to. I'd like to read the quote on wearing a mask. He said, it's not a law. There's too many fucking liberties being taken away from us now. I mean, I take offense to that because it is a fucking law. Sorry, Noel, whether you like it or not, mate, it's the law. Coronavirus act. Exactly. I choose not to wear one. If I get the virus, it's on me. It's not on anyone else. It's a piss take. There's no need for it. They're pointless. So with all due respect to Mr. Gallagher, he appears to have misunderstood respiratory viruses and the means by which they are able to transmit between the population. Yeah, it's, as we said last week, it probably reflects on us slightly that a lot of the people that recorded music we like to listen to appear to be pricks. <laughs> yeah, um, all, all I will do, and, and then in terms of things that Noel Gallagher has said, um, so I'm not sure if you've seen this quote. Gallagher speaking about the reason about his working class roots and the reason he sends his kids to private school. My kids go to private school because I don't want them coming home talking like Ali G. Oh, dear. The working class are the new middle class and there is a non-working class, the people on benefits below. When I was growing up, working class people had pride, were smart, dressed well and had joy and passion for culture. I look at those people on Benefit Street and think there is nothing to them. I mean, it's a long old it's a long old walk from um, tonight. I'm going to be a rock and roll star, and the 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 views espoused in the first album, and what he talked about at the time, where he essentially took the doll so he could smoke gear and record, listen to music, and just fuck around. That's what he talked about that he did at the time. But it's different for other people now. So uh, we're we're going to try and be apolitical on this podcast because this is supposed to be an escape from a lot of that shite. But we're going to call out things when we hear them that are bollocks. And what we've just said for the last five minutes is all bollocks. Right. Okay. I've had enough of talking about famous people being dicks. So let's move on, please. So Tim, um, be here now. Uh, favorite song, worst song. So favorite song, it's a toss up between two. I love all around the world. I agree with everything that you said to criticize the track, but I love it. It's ambition. It's grandeur. It's just fucking great. 
but actually, I am going to say Fading Out is my favorite track on the album. As I said, it sounds completely unlike anything they did before or they did since. I really like it. Fading Out's my favorite track. My least favorite, uh, it's probably no surprise. It's uh, Hope I Think I Know. It's just not a good song. What about you? So for me, um, favorite song, I would pr- I would probably agree it would be Fading Out. Although given my criticisms of all around the world i still i still really like it as a song um i think it's fairly clear my least favorite song on the album the title track uh be here now <laughs> i hate it so much despise it oh fair enough uh, yeah i mean you're wrong but okay right okay enough of this nonsense it's uh, time to give people what they came here for and to see which of these two albums will prevail inside the ring of death so it's time to do the scoring so what are you going to give second coming out of 10 so second coming out of 10 it's it's difficult i'm gonna go with a six and a half and it is losing points for ian brown it's it's a good it's a good album and as I say it's not the it's not the disaster that it's it's purported to be. There's some really strong elements on it and I am I think I am being a little bit harsh, but Ian Brown has really annoyed me. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's where that's where I've come down on it. Okay, um, so for me on second coming, it's flawed. It's overproduced. It's too different to the first album. The, the track order is wrong, but it's not by any stretch the disaster that it came to be seen as. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff on there. There's a lot of variety on there and diversity of, of, of musical styles on there that, that I like. I can't pinpoint a single song on there that I can't find a single thing I like about. Yes, uh, as you said, Ian Brown's views, uh, as expressed in recent months, are well. I'm going to—they're reprehensible. Sorry, they are. Um, six out of ten. I like the second coming a lot, uh, and as flawed as it is, it's a good album. Six out of ten. Okay, so be here now. Um, where have you? Where have you come down on it then? I said earlier that I wanted to come back to the the Mustique demos. So on that um, re-release in 2016, there was a, a deluxe version of the what was called the Chasing the Sun edition, and that included the Mystique demos. And I listened to those as I was preparing for this pod. So most of the tracks that found their way onto the album uh, are on those Mystique demos, plus a, a couple of B-sides. They're demos. So the demos were it was it was it was Owen Morris. Noel Gallagher in Mystique. And so all the drums are done on a drum machine. I think the bass is done on a similar way. It's it's rough workings. Thank you. They're rough workings. But there's some good songs there. There's the genesis, there's the makings of some good songs there. Do you know what I mean? Sounds good when it's pared down, as it did with the reimagining in, in 2016, as I said. Songs like My Big Mouth and Getting Better Man, they sound much better when there's less noise in there and it's a real shame as you said that the producers because it's to be fair it's owen morris and noel gallagher produced the album they were both off their tits on coke that they 
that they were in that state that they didn't actually listen listen to it and think, no, we need to dial this down a bit. There's a good album in there somewhere. And listening to those Mystique demos, there is a good album in there somewhere. Not great, because lyrically, the songs are not as strong as the first two albums. No denying that. But there is a good album somewhere. Unfortunately, it's it's not the one that made it to release. As I said earlier, I bought the vinyl. I've got a decent pair of headphones. I listened to it trying to give it a chance. It's a fucking dirge at times. Five out of ten. So for me, I came I came into it with the with the mindset that it's not that bad. It's certainly not the again, it's not what it's what it's become to represent. And it certainly isn't as bad as the album that follows it. Um, standing on the shoulders of giants, which is a dreadful album. Yeah. But listening, listening to it back and trying to ignore nostalgia, trying to ignore everything else that came around it, I've really, I found it hard work. I found it a real struggle to listen to it and and keep my patience to listen to. We so obviously you, I don't, I don't have a vinyl version, so. I, I have a C, I have a CD version, and I have have it electronically. So I have the option to skip, and the temptation <laughs> to skip was so, like I really had to be disciplined to listen to the out to the songs fully. It's it's a bloated mess. Four out of ten. Yeah. Oh yeah. A mess is right. Okay. So we've given the second coming twelve and a half out of twenty. And we've given B here now nine out of 20. And that's, yeah, cl- very clearly, Second Coming is the winner this week. Uh, second Coming is definitively better than B here now. Yeah, it is. So what are we going to do for our next clash? So I chose this week's albums, which means it's your turn. So it's over to you, Kev. So I had I had so many different thoughts of what we could do. I, had, I, I did have a big old think about that we've had two very guitar-heavy indie rock, classic rock style, and I wanted to do something different to show a little more eclecticism in, in our music taste and to look at something a, a bit different. So the album Clash is the two live albums, both recorded in unusual venues. So our album Clash is 1968's At Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash, Versus 1972's Amazing Grace by Aretha Franklin. Oh, wow. I am excited. I am very excited to listen to those two. We have gone big. Yeah. And I love the idea of a live album as well. Excellent. Really good. Okay. Good stuff. So there you have it. For our next clash, you need to go listen to At Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash and Amazing Grace by the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. So before we go, Kevin, could you just tell the listeners how they can keep in touch with us, please? So you can follow us on Twitter at Clash Album. We also have an Instagram account, which is Clash Album. And our email address, if you want to make any comments or obviously make any suggestions for future album clashes, it's albumclash at gmail.com. So please get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. And if you would like to leave a review, for the show on whichever platform it is you use to subscribe to podcasts, 
then please do. It's very much appreciated. And uh, subscribe, obviously, and, and, and tell your friends. It's a new podcast. We, we hope you're enjoying it. And uh, yeah. So that's been Album Clash. Thank you very much. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. Cheers. See you next time. Cheers. Thanks very much.